Now that he's announced, what are President Biden's true chances of getting reelected? Can he defeat Donald Trump or anyone else that the Republicans put forward? I'm Matt Robeson. Beyond Politics, we're on the Blue Amp channel on YouTube and available wherever you get your podcasts, if you're into audio podcasts, which many of us old school people are. I am joined today by conservative commentator, analyst, and consultant, Alicia Preston. We are not joined as usual by Paul Hodes for our roundtable discussion panel, which we usually call balance of power. When it's just two of us, I like to call it, we're imbalanced. I think it's right on the nose. <laughs> it's just the two of us here today. No former congressman to restrain us. I feel like we restrain him more than he restrains us. Let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Let's change the name of this show to, we should be restrained. President Biden formally announcing that he is running for re-election with a, an understated video in which he sounded themes of, this is about freedom, is about protecting our rights and standing up to the MAGA Republican threat, an initial bet like Nerf gun to our face. What do you think President Biden's reelection chances are? I think it's 50-50. I do. I think, I think his announcement topics were a mistake. You don't come out and announce you're running for president by running against a group of Americans. And his message about the MAGAs, Look, that's, an, that's a movement by a chunk of Americans, probably 25, 30% of Americans are part of that movement. And even if it's a little less, you don't run against a sector of the people you represent. It was just uncomfortable as someone who was decidedly not a MAGA American. I thought it was uncomfortable. That being said, as it sits now, Donald Trump would be the person he's running against. And I can't say I know what would happen between that. I think it's tight. Tighter than Several it was thoughts. in 2020. I saw the video differently because for one thing, he's definitely doing a Rose Garden strategy of occupying the White House to your advantage, not in the illegal way that Donald Trump did when he held the Republican convention at the White House, which you're not allowed to do. There's a law called the Hatch Act that says you can't do that. Be the president and continue being the president as long as you can. So I didn't think that the video was a problem. The understated quality of the announcement was a problem. And I don't think the tone was a problem. Most of the content was about uniting the country. Commentators, pundits and analysts and panelists like us were critical. When Joe Biden last September did that major speech where he called out MAGA Republicans and he called them semi-fascist, semi-authoritarian. He wouldn't go full. He would just go to semi. And we said, wrong tone. This is not the right theme. You've got to run on the economy. You've got to address inflation. But the authors of that strategy, Naveen Nayak, former guest on this show, and Jeffrey Pollack, former guest on this show, a pollster and a political strategist, said, look, we have the numbers behind this. And Americans get this. They understand this. What you said on this show last week is that Americans are rejecting the crazy, right? The lesson of 2022 is we are over this. We are done with the crazy. We don't like it. And I think calling it out as you're running for president, how did he announce his presidential campaign the first time? Fighting for the soul of the nation, fighting for the, to win back the soul of the country. This is the same theme. Who are you fighting against? Every good story needs a villain. I was okay with it. I was okay with the tone. I don't think it can be considered a unifying announcement or speech when he says, except for you guys, except for you tens of millions of people, that are the deplorables, the deplorables, yes. except yes. for you guys. I want to unify everybody else except you guys. I don't like you Americans. And look, this is, it's not Joe Biden's problem. It's America's problem. Look at the violence, political violence in this country. 
I expected more from Joe Biden the first time around. I've followed Joe Biden for years. I got to interview him several times as a reporter when he was in New Hampshire, either campaigning for people or himself back when. And I always liked him. He's affable. He's nice. He loves his country. I believe all those things to this day. But I think he's been pushed to a place of participating in this division when I expected him to work harder to unite. And I'm disappointed in that. Again, I don't quite see it that way because I think what Joe Biden is saying is, I can't even with you people. And I think that's okay. I don't see it as a criticism or a problem to say, I'm willing to unite the country, but there are a portion, there's a, a segment of this country that does not even want to try. And that has embraced violence, authoritarianism, and that has tried to overcome the peaceful democratic transfer of power. This is something that you and I agree on. You're unusual for your party in that you are willing to call an insurrection an insurrection. You are willing to say, you know what? This was evil. It was wrong. It was anti-American. These people deserve to be locked up, which many of them are. And if you have a segment of this country that is into all of that and they're un- recalcitrant. Wow, that was a thousand dollar word. They don't feel bad about this at all. And you've got Donald Trump celebrating them by starting his first presidential campaign rally with a song by the J6 chorus. People who are in jail for beating police officers with the American flag while they were trying to overthrow the government of this country. And Donald Trump says, we're going to celebrate you. Matter of fact, we're going to have this rally in Waco, Texas, where 28 children died and four federal law enforcement officers and dozens of other adult Americans because there was a an insane faction that was trying to stand off against the government that was armed, that had bombs. And you're celebrating this as Donald Trump. I think you fight people like that. I don't think you break I, I, bread with them. I think you're putting too many people in the same group, just like there are different degrees of liberalism or conservatism or anything else. There are absolutely different degrees of those who consider themselves MAGA Republicans. I know a lot of them who do not support what happened on January 6th, who are still scratching their head why the month of the anniversary of the Waco siege, he would hold a rally there, who don't support the hate, the division, the violence. I know a lot of Republicans who will vote for Donald Trump any and every single time he runs for office and do not support that kind of action. I don't think people get to have it both ways. I don't think they get to say, I'm going to stay agnostic on this whole insurrection, overthrow the country with violence issue. I think if you support Donald Trump and you're just like, I don't support the uh, the violent insurrection part of it, but I like the rest of it. You don't get away with that. You There's no I... middle ground on that. Look, I support where you're coming from in general. You and I share a political philosophy, which is we don't have to agree on absolutely everything to be part of a political party. And we happen to agree most fundamentally on the idea that we wish more Americans were like us because the two of us can get along. We can be friends. We can be colleagues. We can have debates. We can occasionally go at each other pretty hard, but we can fundamentally respect one another. And we have real points of policy disagreement. That is great. And your point is right. I support it. And I'd support it for just about everyone else but you can't do it. You can't hand wave away the red line crossing that Donald Trump has done. Even up to that point, I might've said, okay, 
we disagree on the extent to which Donald Trump is responsible for killing hundreds of thousands of Americans because of his vaccine mask and COVID denialism. We disagree on the family separation policy and maybe what he did at the border was horrible, but some of the things Obama did were not good either. And so maybe it's a matter of degrees. Everything up to that point, but I think at the point of the insurrection, you've gone over a red line and it, people have to decide. This is one issue where you have to decide what issue you want. I will say, I don't want to cut off you making another point on this topic, but I do want to get back to the media obsession, kind of horse race nature of this, because I do think it's fundamental to the question. I think you and I agree that if Donald Trump were to get reelected as president and he's the likely Republican nominee, it could represent an extinction level event. I'm talking like they say the meteor that killed the dinosaurs was an extinction level event for life on Earth. I'm talking an extinction level event for American democracy. So this question of Will Joe Biden win is a big one. I Right before the show, I sent you an article from Roy Teixeira. He's a noted political scientist um, and a very influential one. And he was tapping the brakes on Democrats feeling, well, if it's Biden versus Trump again, this is Biden who's going who's gonna to shoo his way in. What did you make of that argument? He lays out five separate points as to why he thinks it could be. And um, one that struck me hard is that Joe Biden needs the working class to win. And he is losing the working class. And that's true. And look, people have fickle memories. I know Donald Trump's in the news every day for whatever nonsense he's spewing, but people have fickle memories of just how difficult it was to live under Donald Trump's presidency. It was chaos. It was constant anger and hate. And it was just, it was a very difficult time as an American, as far as I'm concerned. But people forget that. And what do they do now as working class? They look at the fact they can't afford a home. They look at the fact that they can't afford groceries. They look at the fact that they can't afford their energy bills or to gas up their trucks to get to work. So if he can't come up with a way to increase his support among the working class, that could benefit Donald Trump. I agree with that point. Although the interesting thing about Roy Teixeira is for ugh, political nerds is that 20 years ago, he wrote a book called The Emerging Democratic Majority in which he argued with his co-author, John Judas, no relation to the biblical character, that the growth of certain demographic groups in America, Latino Americans, African Americans, the disproportionate number of women in the electorate, more American adults are women than men, meant that the Democratic Party was going to enjoy an insurpassable majority in the coming years. There, there were two problems here. One is that demographics was not destiny. It turns out that people's political views are not determined solely by their ethnicity or their sex. And those things have evolved in the last 20 years. And it caused Roy Teixeira himself to reassess his own argument about six or seven years later and recant it. The second problem here is that Democrats overlearned the lessons of that original book. I remember this. We were all talking about this when I was a Capitol Hill staffer and a campaign manager. This was an article of faith among young Democrats because I used to be young. It was awesome. And we were all, we were pretty high on our own supply. They're like, this is great. We just have to wait for people to get a little older and start voting more. And we are in. We don't have to do anything except not be terrible. And that was a lot of we got this false signal 
in the Obama 08 election, where it was like it was the Obama coalition, right? Young voters, African-American voters, Latino voters, women. And we thought, see, it's coming true. It's happening. The reality is that's not really what was happening. And in fact, Obama was only reelected in 2012 because of his overperformance with Rust Belt white non-college educated voters. The exact set of voters, Alicia Preston, that you, super smart political analyst that you are, just honed in on again. And that is a group that has been departing the Democratic Party in droves and now is solidly Republican. So that long history lesson is in service of this point. I think that's fair. I think that's true. The issue I would take with it, though, is that it's a totally demographic-based argument that runs smack dab against performance, because where do you see a concentration of those types of voters that leads to them being the dominant group that determines election outcomes? Well, in those Rust Belt states, in the kind of the blue wall states that Trump cracked in 2016 in order to be able to win the presidency. And what we've seen in the last eight years is a steady migration to the Democratic column. Tony Evers winning the governorship in Wisconsin, Georgia not being part of that blue wall, but now solidly performing election after election, both presidential and midterm, in the Democratic column, re-electing Raphael Warnock. And Arizona, and then Pennsylvania moving further blue, Michigan moving further blue, Gretchen Whitmer winning again. Now, you could say, okay, in the latter two cases, Josh Shapiro, very strong gubernatorial candidate, but also up against Doug Mastriano, a MAGA nutball, right? Gretchen Whitmer, same story, like good candidate, but up against a MAGA nutball. But that's essentially what we're talking about here, is that if the contrast is up against MAGA people, you look at the map, and demographics is one thing, but the electoral map is another and what the map math tells us right now is that Trump would have to sweep. If Trump is the nominee, he would have to sweep Wisconsin, Georgia, and Arizona to overcome the electoral college math and defeat Joe Biden. That seems like a tall order. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. It is. However, like I said, four years is a lot longer than two years. And the 2022 election showed us, I don't necessarily buy that Pennsylvania or Georgia or some of the other places you mentioned are going into the blue column. I think a lot of those races were going into the not crazy column, as I've said before. And let's not forget the Mar-a-Lago raid and a whole lot of other news came out just months before the 2022 election. And so the Donald Trump crazy was smack put back in America's face. And I don't necessarily think it was politics or partisanship or policy that moved some of those traditionally red winds into the blue column. I think it was a rejection of Donald Trump style candidates that caused that. But two years down the road from 2022, what does America look like? What does our economy look like? And here's the other factor that I don't understand. But the Democratic Party is allowing the left wing of the party to draw the message to control what's being discussed. Let me give you an example. And do you know what? The Republican Party is doing the same thing. They're allowing yes. the right wing of the party to create the message as well. But most Republicans don't feel that way. And most Democrats don't feel this way. But take Joe Biden's recent proposal where starting May 1st, he has a plan where people with 
a, a credit score above 680, which is two thirds of Americans, will have to pay a higher interest rate than those with poor credit scores to offset the one third that has a lower than 680 credit rating on their mortgage payments. Which means if you have been paying your bills and have a good credit score. If you score, have a federal HSA loan. If you have a federal uh, housing. It, yeah, through the, yes, right, yes, through the housing. Have, which most so, people do, but yes. Which most people do. So if you have paid your bills, because let's remember, credit score has nothing to do with what your income is. It strictly has to do with have you been paying your bills properly? Do you manage your debt? And so those two thirds of Americans who have done so and continue to do will get penalized to support a small fraction of the country. And they're doing it with identity politics. They're doing it with a message of black and Latino communities have lower test scores. Now, that is an unfair offset to the majority of Americans. And it is not something I believe the majority of Democrats actually support. I don't think it's a left wing concept. I'll go down in the weeds on this for just a moment with you. My question is, why are these unaccountable huge corporations, the credit rating agencies, which are private companies, why are they getting to determine your credit score on the basis of factors that you know nothing about based on some magic black box formula? I think the federal government stepping in and putting some standards around that and saying, hold on a second, let's clean this up and let's make it more fair, actually is totally legitimate, has nothing to do with left-wing politics. I'm not a fan of this system, and let me tell you why. Because I grew up in an old New England family, which meant my family didn't have credit cards. My family didn't do that. My mom was a school teacher, my dad a safety engineer. We weren't rich by any method, but enough that they could pay for my college. They bought me my first car, gave me a car for graduation. So guess what that meant? I didn't have any credit. Until I was about 28, I never had a car loan, a student loan, a credit card. I couldn't get one when I first went to buy a car. I think my rate was like 16%. Why? Because my credit rating was crap because I had no credit history. And I remember that's when I learned about the system and thinking this is such a stupid system. I've made it to almost 30 years old and I don't owe anybody money. Shouldn't I be appreciated for that? Can I build on your point? If you have a system that assesses people's credit worthiness, their credit rating, that results in disproportionately young people minority, racial minority people in this country ending up with a low credit rating score, that it doesn't mean that you're saying we need to fix this just because race. What you're saying is, you know what? This system does not acknowledge the reality that many Americans live with. 10% of the banking done in this country is done by this fringe banking sector, payday loans, car loans, pawn shops, all kinds of fringe financial services because you don't get access to regular credit cards, banks, if you're certain people in certain neighborhoods. It just doesn't exist. And so you end up trapped in this cycle of poor credit or no credit because you have to rely on these ultra high interest rate, can't get out from under them, fly by night, financial service, fringe operators. And that puts you in this, you're trapped cycle. And so all so of this- So I agree with you. I yeah. agree with you on the premise that the system is completely flawed for the reason I said. Exactly. I, I disagree with you that this is the way to solve it. And here's the major reason why. But it's not because like a woke progressive thing. It is because of how they stated it. But here's why it's the wrong way to solve it. For 20 years, 30 years, I don't know, however long this current system's been in place, 
We've now been told we have to live on this good credit. I now have excellent credit, not because I know how to do it, but because my husband is, he is a fascist on this kind of stuff. And oh. he, on the, or I should say authoritarian. Meaning, well, I Glinda, it's like, you a good witch or a bad or witch? A bad oh, witch. he's a good fascist. And that he's, no, you're going to get a credit card. So he got me this very small credit card. And he's, you're going to use it every month. And you're going to use it every month and we're going to pay it every month. And right. you're going to get a yes. car loan and I'll get on your car loan to improve. So it's not such a terrible interest rate, but that way we'll improve. So in the last 10 years, I now have excellent credit. I have excellent credit because I was told that's what I need to do in America to manage my finances. So I did what I was told. And now the government says, you did what you were told. These other people either can't or didn't do what they were told, and can't is a factor. So we're going to penalize you for doing what we told you to do for the last 20 years, and you did it. Now we're going to punch you in the face and cost you more money. That's what they're doing. So will you grant me that the attempt to fix the system is different than some of the messaging that your communications staff may decide to put out? And so if what you're hearing in the discussion about this from the White House is an acknowledgement of, hey, this has a disproportionate impact on Black folks in America. So that's one of the reasons that's motivating us to try to fix it. That's different. That's a communications thing. That's messaging to part of your political base. You, that's different than your financial economic motivation to say, the situation that you just described is wrong. Now, I get that there's a bit of an ideological difference here, that what you're saying is, you're penalizing people who have played by the rules. What I'm saying is there is a group of people in America, if you're a deadbeat and you don't pay your bills, and there could be mitigating factors behind that, that's one thing. But there is a massive segment of Americans who just don't even have the chance. They don't have the chance to amass a credit score because they don't have access. They can't. There's nowhere to even begin. It's a catch-22. They're caught in it. And we need to fix that. That doesn't mean that the party is in the hands of the woke progressives. President Biden has governed as a pretty mainstream, moderate, down the center kind of politician. If you look at his track record and what he's going to be running on, it's going to be the biggest yearly increase in U.S. manufacturing jobs in 30 years. It's going to be Last year, 65,000 miles of roads, 1,500 bridges invested in, including a groundbreaking in Kentucky with Mitch McConnell, because he got together with 15 Senate Republicans and said, let's get this infrastructure thing done. Getting together with Republicans to pass the first gun safety bill, in including strengthening the Violence Against Women Act, because he was able to get Senate Republicans on board. Ditto healthcare, ditto COVID, ditto jobs. It's going to be something that you've given him credit for, which is holding together, strengthening and expanding the NATO alliance to stand up to Russian aggression and Vladimir Putin. This is some pretty centrist stuff. And I don't think that's a record that's going to look like it's super scary woke progressivism at the end of the day. But here's my problem. Here's what I'm scared of. Alicia, I am scared that the leaders of your party, see all of this. They're smart. They can read an electoral map. And they know, <laughs> if it's Donald Trump again, we've got to somehow like claw back the even harder to reach states like Pennsylvania and Michigan. That seems like a harder proposition than it did in 2016, based on electoral success in the last eight years. We've got to run the table on Arizona, Georgia, and Wisconsin. Not impossible, but hard. 
with Donald Trump, but what if the economy were even worse? What if we were in a full-scale free-fall recession? What if we were in another global Great Depression? That wouldn't be bad for our election chances. We might regain power that way. I think they're setting up this debt ceiling maneuver because they want to crash the economy. Because a year from now, after the economy crashes, voters won't remember who did what to whom and who was being unfair and who was hostage taking the American economy. They'll just blame the guy in charge, who's the president, who's President Biden. I think they're intentionally trying to crash the economy. Am I wrong? I, I do think you're wrong. I don't think what McCarthy and they are doing is that calculated. I really don't. I don't think it's that forward thinking either. Look, he just had a success. He passed a package. It's probably going to get killed in the Senate anyway. And Biden said he's going to veto it. But I've maintained all along. I don't see the sky falling. I think the debt limit, I think it will be resolved. I don't think anyone's going to crash the economy because most people in Congress, we're not talking about the Marjorie Taylor Greens. We're not even talking about the McCarthy's of the world. Most people love their country and are not going to allow it to be economically or otherwise destroyed. Maybe I'm naive, but I don't see it. I don't think you're naive. I think, I know you're not naive. I think you're engaged in some hopeful thinking. Not wishful, hopeful. You have hopes for the Republican Party because you believe that it can be redeemed. Once the majority of Republicans voted to overturn the results of the 2020 election on the basis of the big lie, I lost hope that the Republican Party can be redeemed. I think they need to wander the wilderness and come back. I don't credit them with the foresight to be able to say, maybe this isn't so good if we bring the whole country down in order to be able to put a madman back in charge of the White House. I, I just think it's a tough topic. It's a tough topic to weed through. And before you know it, you begin to lose track of whose fault, blah, blah, blah. You don't want to hear it. It's like when your kids are fighting, it's like, you just, you don't want to hear about who punched whom and who stuck bubble gum in whose hair. You just, you want someone to fix it. You go to blame the person in charge. You go, you blame the president. I think in general, that's true. And you're right. This is a difficult topic. And I agree with you. It's both sides treat the American public like we're stupid on this issue. When whether it's Democrat or I'll go with Republican messaging because I'm a Republican. When the Republicans say this is you maxed out your credit card, so you just call up and increase your debt limit. That's not what this is. And they know it's not. And it drives me batty because you're treating the Americans like we're stupid and we're not. But while we may not be stupid, how many of us have time to look into exactly. all this? We don't have the time. I have the time because I have to do shows like this every week. But and that's what I do in part for a living. But most Americans don't have the time to sit down and figure out what this means. So you got talking points on the, on the right and talking points on the left, and you're hearing them and you're believing some of them, disbelieving others. And neither one of us them is really telling us the full truth. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. I want to bottle what you just said because it was brilliant, Alicia Preston, because you really did break down in a nutshell the problem here with the Republican talking points, which is. They're connecting things that sound superficially similar, right? We have to stop spending. So we're not going to increase the debt limit. Those things, as you just said, have nothing to do with each other. If they you don't. want to use the credit card analogy, which you shouldn't because it does not apply, just trust me on that. If you want to use the credit card analogy, it's like saying, we're going to default on our mortgage and get kicked out of our house if we don't pay our bills. But I don't like how much we're spending. So let's do that. No, that's a bad idea. Please, listeners, don't do that. 
This isn't financial advice. I'm not a financial advisor, but don't do that. By the same token, we should not do that to our entire country and get kicked out of our house because Republicans in Congress are kowtowing to a far right that doesn't know what they want, except they want to throw a hissy fit about spending because they think it plays well in their polling. That's it does, and it should. And I absolutely am opposed to the rampant spending that the Democrats in Congress keep pushing forward. And the Republicans, because don't forget that under Donald Trump, our national debt increased by 25%. Yes, it did. But right now, the Democrats are the ones pushing huge spending initiatives, and I am completely opposed to it. However, that has nothing to do with the debt ceiling and our need to increase it. And Partisans on both sides in Congress are playing the Americans for stupid because most, again, just don't have the time to look into every single policy issue and question out there. There is a deal to actually be had here. Okay. There is, we could, let's solve this for America right now. I'll be Kevin McCarthy. You be Joe Biden. Okay. okay. I will come to you and I'll say, Joe, booby. I can't go back to my nutballs and not get a pound of flesh out of you. I've got to. I've got to give them something on spending. And you say to me, Kevin, darling, Bubbala, I hear you. But if I give in and we do a quid pro quo here, I will have negotiated with terrorists. If you give a mouse a cookie, they're going to want a glass of milk. And if you give a MAGA a deal for a debt ceiling increase, they're going to come back and they're going to crash the whole fucking economy next time. So why don't we do this? You give me a clean debt ceiling increase that has nothing to do with anything. And I promise you, and I keep my promises, that next month I will agree to a budget that reduces spending to the levels that you just passed in your last budget. They will be two separate things that we agree to all at once that are not connected and have nothing to do with each other. How do you feel about that deal, President Biden? If I'm Kevin McCarthy, I'm going to listen to that. And that sounds great. And while I trust Joe Biden to keep his promises, I don't trust the Democrats in the Senate to do. They're not going to keep Joe Biden's promises. Let's let's Chuck Schumer in here. Chuck. Chuck. Booby. I'm Kevin McCarthy. Chuck, (laughs) I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And Mitch McConnell can be in the room too, okay? I'm going to do this, but don't screw me. This is how we solved the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? We said to the Soviet Union, we, you right now have to pull your missiles out of Cuba. And in six months, in an apparently unconnected move, we will pull our Jupiter missiles out of Turkey. Let's Cuban Missile Crisis this. Let's save the world. You would do it, right? I would do it, but is would Chuck Schumer say yes? Chuck would do it. He's got progressives in his party that don't want him to. They don't want, and don't forget, this partisan blame the other side thing is happening everywhere. And the Democrats want to equally destroy the Republicans as much as the Republicans and do things that will make the Republicans look bad just as much as the Republicans want to do things to make the Democrats look bad. Here's why Chuck would do this, because he can also read an electoral map. And he knows that the Republicans' outs here are not that many, and that one of the few things that they would have going for them is a spiraling economy. If you take that off the board, their ability to crash the economy, that helps you long-term. Don't forget, it's a really tough 
Senate map for Democrats in 2024. Really tough. Jim just announced that he's going to run against Joe Manchin in West Virginia. That looks like a likely pickup right there. The best thing that helps Chuck Schumer long-term is strong economy, strong Joe Biden reelect. I think he would do that deal. It's a long-term play. If he would, then I think that's great. I'm not as confident as you are that I suppose you only need a few Democrats to go, what, 10, 12 Democrats to go along with it. Maybe he's able to pull that many. I'm not as confident as you that they won't stick their feet in the sand just to deliberately try to screw the Republicans. Let's take this full circle because we started with, can Joe Biden win? The thing that would give me the most pause as a member of your party is you can't beat something with nothing. And right now, the most likely something you're going to have is Donald Trump. And that doesn't look great. But I'm not sure that your backup options are that great either. Ron DeSantis is not doing well. Things are not going great for him right now. And there's plenty of videos that we have on the Blue Ant channel. I hope people will check them out where we dive into this with close Florida political observers explaining exactly why he's so flawed as a candidate. And then you look down the list. Is Biden going to be much weaker against Mike Pence? Maybe yes against Tim Scott or Nikki Haley, but do they have any chance of winning the nomination? I'm just saying that like, it's all well and good to say that in a vacuum, Joe Biden doesn't look that strong as as an incumbent. But boy, when you put him in a head-to-head, I'm not sure what the Republicans have going here. Well, here's what I think when it comes to Ron DeSantis. I think he has a lesser chance of being a nominee presuming Trump stays in this race, than a Nikki Haley or a Tim Scott or another. And why that is because he's pulling from the same pool of voters as Donald Trump. And he's Donald Trump's way ahead of DeSantis with that pool of voters. If you're not voting for Donald Trump, you're probably only voting for DeSantis because you don't like the vibe of Donald. But you're st- DeSantis is Trump-like, right? He's just a less vile. He's trying to be of Donald Trump. And but his policies and his programs are the same. So if that's a big if someone other than Trump is able to get the nomination, I don't think it would be a DeSantis. Therefore, I think Biden's chances are greatly weakened against another Republican. I think the DeSant, I think Donald Trump is the best bet for Joe Biden, but I still think it's 50-50. But here's here's my conspiracy theory. You ready for this? Oh, I love conspiracy. Should I turn on the TikTok camera? Yeah. So here's my conspiracy theory. All these attacks on Clarence Thomas. This is all going to make sense in a minute. Give me a second here. All these attacks and perpetual going after Clarence Thomas. I figured out why suddenly this is happening. You want to know why? I do. Joe Biden knows the better chance he has of winning again is if he has a, a stronger vice presidential candidate because everyone's looking at Joe Biden's age. He'd be, what, 86 by the end of another term. And everyone's going, what happens if Joe Biden, for whatever reason, cannot fulfill his term? We're left with Kamala Harris. Oh, hell no. So we get Clarence Thomas off the court. I, Joe Biden, can nominate Kamala Harris to the Supreme Court. She gets a bench there. I've got an open place for VP. I pull in somebody a little more moderate, certainly more younger and more palatable, maybe a woman, to the rest of the country. My chances just went up by several percent. Wow. I would give that one a six. I. It's not prima facie crazy. It's not crazy. Again, though, the flaw in it is who, right? You can't replace something with nothing. This is, uh, this has been great. We're totally in balance for Alicia Preston. I'm Matt Robeson. We'll see you next time.